What's up, everyone? This is episode 256 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my X account is at Wax Museum PC. Well, speaking of social media, if you follow me on social media, you've probably seen me posting about the newest pacer, and that's two-time All-NBA forward Pascal Siakam. A lot of you have been messaging me about him. Now, you might remember that the framework of a deal leaked out sometime around January 16th, and I don't get too wrapped up in trade talks, but this was all coming from legitimate sources, and things progressed quickly from there, and I think the trade was finalized the next day. It's funny, I just so happened to be in a meeting at work when it all went down, but I kind of had an idea it was happening because... My phone was just blowing up, and of course I couldn't look at all the messages at the time, but my phone was blowing up. It was very similar to the situation from a couple seasons ago when the Pacers traded for Tyrese Halliburton, but you know, I don't mind that at all, because it's not every day your favorite team makes a big, impactful trade, and the Pacers have now done two in the span of just a couple of short years. And I know you don't necessarily come here for NBA analysis, but I had so many people reach out to me asking what I thought of the trade and so forth. I couldn't really answer everyone in detail because there were just so many messages. So I want to talk some about the Pacers roster a little bit here real quick because I absolutely love this move. Um, It turns out the Pacers have needed more length all season long. And with the addition of Pascal Siakam, you get a guy who will give you 22 points a game He's great in transition, he fits our style of play, and one of the things I love the most that a lot of people aren't talking about, this move allows Carlisle to slide a lot of guys back into their original roles or back to their normal position. So no more Andrew Nimhard or Buddy Heald or Aaron Neesmith struggling to guard fours that can just shoot over them. No more Jalen Smith at the four, he can move back to his normal spot, which is backing up Miles Turner, he's a great backup though. And then it's a lot less Obi Toppin that I'm going to have to watch as well. That's all I will say about that. Now, all for what price? Well, Bruce Brown was signed in the offseason to give us a little more stability. It was a short-term deal to help hit the salary floor. So they accomplished that. He was good here, but he's certainly replaceable. And then everyone seemed to be taken back by the fact that Indy gave up three first-round picks. But you've got to remember, not all picks are created equal. Two of those picks are late teens or early 20s in what's projected to be a lackluster draft next year. And then the third one after that, you know, the Pacers can deal with that because they're barely even playing their um, top 10 pick from last year, Jairus Walker. And speaking of Jairus Walker, I have to say I'm thrilled the Pacers did this without giving up any young assets because a big point of contention in the OG Ananobi talks was that Toronto didn't want picks. They wanted players. And the Pacers didn't give up Ben Matherin. They didn't give up Andrew Nimhard. They didn't even have to give up Jairus Walker. And I had all but considered him gone because he just doesn't get a lot of playing time. So like I said, I am thrilled about this move. Uh, They have lost the first two games with him in the lineup, but it's more so because of the other injuries on the roster. We'll get Tyrese back for good. We'll get Siakam back. If this team can get healthy, that four to eight range in the East is pretty close. You know, you never know. Uh, Now, before I move on, the other question a lot of people have asked me about the trade, am I going to go out and buy 
a bunch of Siakam cards. Or some people are saying, do you want my Siakam cards? Do you want to buy my Siakam cards? Um, for the most part, I, I well, the short answer on, on buying a bunch of them is no, not yet. And believe me, it is tempting. You probably even see me tweet out that, hey, you know, I'm looking at Siakam cards or, hey, I'm probably going to buy a Siakam card tonight because I'm watching the game. But I've talked about this before when other players have been traded. Once the new stuff comes out, if you've already bought that other stuff from the old team, you really have no attachment to it. So it's tricky. You don't want to get stuck with that stuff. My solution to that is to try and pick up a few pieces from sets I like. If he had a draft night auto, I would have gotten that. Um, but he's a year too early for that set. They really started those in, in status in 2017. I did, however, pick up a draft combine patch, and this was months ago. You might have seen that in my newest Com C shipment. And then this last week, I grabbed a cheap jersey numbered Flux Parallel. I think I'm going to add a page for him in my Flux Binder. And unless a nice, cheap jumbo flawless patch hits the market, that's probably it for now. Uh, I just, I have to rely on my past experiences to trust that my patience will pay off in the future. I've seen it happen before. I feel pretty good that that's going to happen again. So that's one thing about this whole hobby journey is you use your experiences to kind of shape your actions going forward. So not my first trade. I have to keep telling myself that. I have to remind myself. All right, before I move into today's mailbag, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link. And using this link costs you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access this link, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you are going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so as you saw by the title, today's main segment is the 18th installment of the Lister Mailbag, and it seems like there were a lot of questions about fanatics this time around, and in-person autographing too, which kind of surprised me, but I like it because it gives me a chance to share a couple stories I probably haven't told on here before, so let's go ahead and jump right in. The first question today, a good question to start with in my opinion, comes from Dar's 90s Cards, who wrote... Do you think we generally overestimate the reach of the hobby? And I clarified with him kind of, you know, what he meant by that. He mentioned the fact that some of the larger consignment companies and breakers and even manufacturers are trying to dismiss the fact that it's a hobby comprised of a very small, unique group of people. I think Josh and Chris talked about this a little on the last episode of Crossover uh, when they were chatting about bringing new people into the hobby. I've said it several times already, and I'll say it again. I think people just have to have some sort of collecting gene, and either you've got it or you don't. The people that aren't wired that way, yeah, you know, they might be convinced to come into the hobby for a little bit, but ultimately they're going to leave when they come to the realization that it's not for them. I think people are generally influenced, or maybe a better word would be conditioned, when they experience something again and again, or they've, uh, they're exposed to a series of related events. So LeBron talking about a rookie card in a press conference that very few people even saw, that probably won't end up having the same effect that a lot of people in the hobby hoped for. And it is what it is. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that these companies shouldn't try to reach new people. I mean, we did just see uh, a Bowman ad in a, a high-profile football game, right? That couldn't have been cheap. But maybe they should start with 2Xing the hobby instead of 10Xing. And, and maybe they go about it in a way that's more sustainable for long-term growth. You'd think that would be the approach for a company that just signed a 20-year exclusive, a long-term approach. But as of right now, it doesn't appear to be the case. Okay, so I mentioned LeBron and hobby companies in that last response. Phoenix Sun Sports Card Catalog asked, how big of an impact will LeBron signing with Topps or Fanatics have on the hobby, and will you be chasing any of his new cards? Well, the tone of this answer is going to get pretty negative pretty fast, so before I get too far, I want to repeat the fact that I am excited that LeBron's signing again, and I think more LeBron autographs hitting the market is a good thing. It gives more collectors a chance to own one. With that being said, I think the immediate handling of the LeBron situation is bad and, and maybe even catastrophic, and I'll tell you why. It's obvious that this is the next move in a series of feast or famine gimmicks designed to market products. And this isn't new to the hobby, by the way. We've seen this with the Triple Logo Man and a number of other cards as well. It's a dangerous game for these manufacturers, though, because they're designing and marketing products around a very, very small number of hits. And they've done nothing to elevate the value of the rest of the cards in the product. So what about the 99.99999% of people who open these products and don't get the Brady or the LeBron? The manufacturers are essentially telling consumers that those cards are garbage, the rest of the cards. And right now, that, that might be right, but like I alluded to on the last question, this is not a sustainable model for the long term. At some point, though, I hope that people begin to see through the majority of these gimmicks that are designed to move lackluster products, although history seemingly indicates otherwise. Uh, we can't rely on the big auction houses and the breakers to step in and help because they're the ones that are cheerleading the whole thing and helping to perpetuate it in the process. It's great for them because they're always going to be the ones that end up with the desired grails in their hands without having to suffer all the monetary loss. They convince you to go through all that. You break the boxes. You do this. So then they can open them on your behalf and sell the cards once they surface. So circling back around, I, I know you ask about the LeBron signing and how that will impact the hobby, the short answer is it impacts the manufacturing scene quite a bit. And then that in turn kind of dictates how people are forced to collect. And until we get anything of him in an NBA uniform, uh, I can't see myself chasing any of these cards. Okay, more tops questions. Cornerstone underscore cards wrote, start one, bench one, cut one, tops chrome, tops finest, and tops pristine. Uh, and then he clarifies it's the new future hypothetical versions of the sets from Fanatics. This is an easy one for me. I'm starting Topps Chrome. I like Finest, but it's not my number one, so it's coming off the bench. You know, maybe it'll win six men of the year. And then Topps Pristine can just go play for the Pistons for all I care. Okay, not to say it's a horrible product, but out of those three, Topps Pristine is a far number three for me. The next three questions I'm going to lump together because I think the answers are all kind of similar. Josh, aka Mitten State Collector, wrote, What are some secondary tops products you would enjoy seeing Fanatics bring back as annual or semi-regular releases? Also, should Fanatics release a version of Chronicles where non-standalone tops products from the 2000s are released in a single set? 
And then Sports Card Legend asks, any basketball releases that were short-lived that you'd like to see revived? I think I'm going to tackle these in a different order. Uh, I love the idea of a Chronicles-like set for tops. Obviously, they wouldn't be able to call it that, but uh, that might be a good spot for some of the one-offs from the past, like 2005 Poker Chips. Uh, do we want to see that again? Not, not as Certainly not as a full release, maybe as a Chronicles type. Uh, 2003 Rookie Matrix, 2003 Contemporary Collection, and I actually really liked Contemporary Collection, but I hesitate to request it as a standalone release because... I think we need to ease up a bit on the Chromium stuff. As far as secondary standalone releases, I'd like to see some sort of product to replace the Jumbo Patches in Immaculate. Uh, the only thing they had close to that in basketball was Topps Big Game. Of course, I'd like to see some low-end products mixed in like Topps Total. I've said numerous times I want more Topps Heritage. But uh, I guess I should also be careful what I wish for. So I'm, I'm not sure why, but both Topps and Panini really struggle recreating some of their previous releases. It's like they don't make any sort of notes about what font they used or, or what size the text should be. Uh, Panini recreated 2012 Hoops in this year's Hoops throwback set, if, if you haven't seen it yet, which I, that I think is pretty cool because I, I have great memories of that set. But when you look at it, something about it just looks off. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something's wrong. These cards don't look right. But uh, anyway, those are just a handful of basketball products that I'd like to see come back in some form. Motor City Cardboard wrote, ever accidentally started a class by saying, what's up guys, this is Kyle from Wax Museum. Uh, more seriously, what sets would you like to see Fanatics acquire Panini for, if any? Well, you joke, but I have to be really careful when I jump on a work-related Zoom call, which isn't often, but it does happen. Uh, I haven't slipped up yet, but there have been a few close calls. Uh, sometimes I even have to write something on a card in front of me so I don't make a goofy mistake. As far as Fanatics acquiring Panini, there are some brands I'll miss, but I kind of feel like it's all right if they just go away. Now, I don't know if I want to see them go away for 20 years, but there are some parallels or some brands that Panini's kept around a little too long, and it's definitely impacted the legacy of those products. So some people might even say we're in the, the Jordan Wizards years for some of the more popular stuff like Prism and NT. I, I say that. I'm being a little facetious here. I actually enjoyed MJ's Wizards years, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, one last Fanatics question, and then I'm moving on. LJ and KG ask, with Fanatics taking over, what's one brand or one thing you'd like to see them do to spice up NBA collecting. After what I said earlier, I definitely want to steer away from any more marketing gimmicks. But uh, you guys know I'm always thinking about relic cards. I think the rookie debut patches we've seen in baseball, and then I think they're going to start doing it in football as well. That should make its way over to basketball and, and probably will. I don't think everything Fanatics does has to be completely new. They can probably take some things that have been done in the past and um, bring them back or make them a little bit better or try to do them on a larger scale. For example, um, with basketball relics, right? We've seen pieces of nets used in old Fleer and Upper Deck products. Now, they were very small pieces. Well, why not have a much larger piece of a net and a card numbered to 10 or numbered to 15? Because there are Steiner authenticated nets on eBay in the 30 to $40 range. So you could probably make cards for a couple different players just using that. It's cheap. It's something different. 
Uh, but we'll see. I'm curious to see what all they have in store. Speaking of relic cards, I got a couple questions about relics. Slangandrocks.pc asked, what is your dream fantasy jersey card? This one's pretty simple. I just want jumbo pieces from significant jerseys in Pacers history. So maybe one of the ABA Pacers when they clinched a title or Slick Leonard's jacket from the final game, uh, Reggie's eight points in nine seconds jersey, Reggie's game winner over Jordan, Ron Arcest's Malice at the Palace jersey. I, I've talked about making a, a custom like that before. You know, that sort of stuff. That's what I'd be looking for. Clips and Vols wrote, would you rather have a Halliburton game-used chunky patch from the Eastern Conference Finals or a game-used napkin from the Finals? At first, I thought this was a trick question. Like, if I choose the Eastern Conference Finals, does that mean the Finals cards don't exist, right? Does that mean the Pacers don't make it to the Finals? In that case, I'd just choose the Finals napkin. But if they're going to make the Finals either way, I'm definitely going to go with the chunky patch. I know that seems strange because I collect final stuff, but... Uh, it'd still be a game-dated patch from a, a pretty important game. That I think that'd be a cool piece to own. Green Stiller wrote, You can give Jeff Foster one modern card. What is it? You can give Tyrese 190s and 2000s card. What are they? And then he specified no autos or relics. Of course, that last clarification there really changed things. Uh, a modern card for Jeff Foster is tough because he doesn't seem to have any sort of connection to the current game. You really don't hear about Jeff anymore. And I've read that he used to attend Spurs games growing up and he was pretty excited to meet David Robinson. I would have done an auto, but uh, like you said, I I can't choose that. So I'm going to cheat a little here and give him a modern insert of an older player. So I'd pick a a David Robinson card. Uh, As far as Tyrese goes, he's really big into retro stuff for basketball and, and also wrestling. I thought there was a Dennis Rodman card in one of the old Topps WCW sets, but I looked and I looked, and and apparently that doesn't exist. That was just my imagination. So for the 90s, I'd probably just give him a Reggie Beam team or something like that, and then for the 2000s, probably a Granger rookie of some sort because he seems to appreciate the franchise's history. Okay, next up, I Collect Wade asks, do you set any rules or limitations for your side PC like, you spend a dollar for Pacers, but only 50 cents max on your side PC. I wish I could say things with my PC were that structured, but I don't have any sort of rules like that. The bigger temptation for me is not buying Colts cards during football season, and I do generally make a handful of purchases to kind of scratch that itch, and then it's back to the NBA. After I bought a handful of things, I, I can just kind of feel once it's time to stop doing that and to move on. Maybe it's the act of putting things in that football shoebox and realizing it's starting to fill up again. I don't know. But in general, budgeting for certain areas of the PC is difficult because my purchases depend more so on what cards show up. Pacers will always take up the majority of the funds, though. That's something that uh, I can't see ever changing. Okay, Benny.Collects asks, what are your favorite ComC pickups from the last couple months? I actually just got a shipment of about 60 cards Some of you might have seen that video on my YouTube channel this past weekend. There were two cards in that shipment that really stood out to me. The first was a 2004-2005 EXL Essential Credentials Now of Ron Artest numbered 1 of 9. I'm not a huge fan of the 04 credentials. In fact, they don't even really seem like credentials to me. At least the football ones from that season have a little bit of shine to them, but 
You know, our test had a pretty small window with the Pacers, and this is one of the toughest and probably most important cards from that time frame, excluding 101s. I mentioned on my Instagram stories that I hit the bin on this immediately. Now, I meant on Com C, and I had a few people message me with something like, wow, what a steal, which confused me because I didn't show a price. And, and I'm, I felt like, you know, no, it, it wasn't a steal if they know what I paid for it. So that prompted me to go look on eBay and apparently an unnumbered copy of that Artest sold on there for $10. So little misunderstanding there. That was not mine. Mine is the numbered copy. I was thrilled to find it. Unfortunately, it cost me quite a bit more than $10. But um, the other card was a 2000-2001 Topps Chrome Final Piece NBA Finals patch of Derek McKee, number 10 of 25. This is a set I've been chasing for years, and when this one showed up, I had to check my Flickr to see if I had it. I believe I only need two or three now. Well, it turns out I didn't have this one, which meant I could knock one off the checklist using my ComC credit, which works out great for me because a lot of the stuff I send there is stuff I find when I'm digging at shows. So anyway, those are two cards from that shipment that stood out to me. There was a lot of other good stuff in there too. I won't talk about it all here, but feel free to head on over to my YouTube channel if you want to watch that whole unboxing. And okay, that's probably as good a time as any to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 33 million cards, from basketball's biggest stars like LeBron James and Kevin Durant to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man, Thor, and Captain America. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. All right, I received multiple questions about in-person autos, which, like I said earlier, was a bit of a surprise, but uh, a good one nonetheless. So Clips Cards fan asks, what's your strategy for in-person autos? Rookie, Pacer jersey only, type of marker, and so on. Now, you guys know John. He's been on the show before. I saw he recently cracked a Kawhi Prism rookie out of a slab and got it signed out of Clippers game, which is huge. Uh, and that was a gamble. That's not an easy task from what I understand. And he was able to make that happen. As far as his question about my strategy, though, for the marker, I try to just roll with the standard blue Sharpie, uh, tested ahead of time, of course. You don't want to just pull one off the shelf and, and roll with it. Uh, as for the actual cards, I generally prioritize cards that picture games that I went to. And that's a newer strategy for me in these last couple years. I think it's because I didn't want to get Halliburton King's rookies signed and it just kind of um, you know developed from there. But if a player was a rookie with the Pacers, I try to get that signed. Otherwise, I want something of them in a Pacers uniform. In the past, I've stayed away from shiny stuff, but I've got a few prism cards signed lately that turned out pretty nice, including a cracked ice prism of Benedict Mathern. One thing I've learned over time, control the things you can control in these settings and just be happy with whatever you can get. Because I used to stress out a lot about pin collar and all of that. Uh, you know, I still do to an extent, but at the end of the day, it's just fun to get stuff signed. Uh, kind of like collecting cards, you know, it's all about the chase. That segues well into the next question, which asks about bad autograph experiences. Mike Bev Celtics wrote, Did you ever have a bad in-person autograph experience, either where the player disrespected you or was mean to you? And then Mike clarifies here. 
he had an awful experience with KG that he says he's still bitter about. Um, I try not to make a big deal about weird or awkward or, or bad experiences unless it's a paid signing. That's a little different. Otherwise, though, athletes aren't obligated to do anything for me, even if I buy a ticket to a game. With that being said, I had a really weird experience at a minor league game once, and I should clarify this was minor league spring training, which is a lot different from the major league version. This is on the backfields of a complex. There's no tickets. There's really no seating. And the way it works, the visiting teams will roll in on a bus, and they generally have a pretty long walk to the fields and then back, which is great if you're autographing and you have some idea what players are going to travel, because there's a long walk there, there's a long walk back. This particular day was a triple A game, so these are guys that had a lot of cards, but were more or less stuck bouncing between leagues. None of them were projected to be full-time major leaguers, but if you were someone that worked on getting sets signed and, and you could you know, easily recognize players or, or recognize them quickly, like I said, it could be a very good day of autographing for you. Anyway, I had some cards of a catcher named Rob Brantley that I wanted to get signed, and I was able to pick him out from his group, which was not always an easy task because a lot of times they come in with pullovers on or they've got gear on or they've got a bag on their back. You can't always see their name and their number, and, and they definitely look a lot different than when they took the picture on their cards. A lot of times those cards are from years ago. So I picked Rob out and I asked him if he'd sign. And I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of if you can keep up. So I thought he wanted me to walk with him, which wasn't normal, but it's not out of the question either. Some guys like to walk and sign. So I got beside him and then he picked up the pace a little bit. So I did too, to accommodate that request. And then he started weaving in and out of the other players. I wasn't about to do that. So I slowed down. And and when he looked back, I kind of gave him this hand wave as if to say, you're not worth chasing. And look, I know these minor league journeyman guys have had a hard road. So I'd never really say anything to demean a player. And I don't really want to imply it with a, a gesture or a hand wave either. But this guy was being a jerk for no reason. And I wasn't going to make a big deal about it, but I wasn't going to run around and allow it to happen either. Uh, When all was said and done, I think he did end up signing for me, but at that point, I didn't really care if I got it or not, and I was ready to move on. Uh, Before I do move on with this story, though, I've told that story to other autographers, and, and they all indicated that that was about par for the course for Rob Brantley, so I guess it's good to know my experience wasn't an anomaly. I got the typical Rob Brantley treatment that day. Okay, so those are some of the experiences I've had out in the wild. The next question pertains more to a controlled environment. Hoops Hobby asks, do you have any in-person autograph encounters or photo ops on your to-do list? Could be at a card show signing, at a game, and so on. I know I talk about chasing autographs on this show from time to time, but I don't get around to doing it nearly as much as I used to. It used to be a, a, a real big thing for me, but my main opportunities around here our spring training, and minor league baseball. And that got exponentially more difficult around COVID. And and then I just kind of fell out of love with baseball. Like I I just really am not all that interested anymore. So um, don't do baseball anymore. I also don't live close enough to Orlando where I want to do a bunch of NBA games. I just try to do the Pacers when they're in town. I've never been too big on paid signings in the past unless it was something cheap at a local show Uh, In fact, the first time I've ever paid more than $20 for any sort of signing 
or meet and greet was this past year at the National. I got my picture with Kareem, which was worth every penny in my opinion. And then there was the Iverson signing, which it is what it is. I, I didn't leave feeling like I got my money's worth out of that experience. Um, that's all I'll say. Maybe those feelings will change over time, but at least I've done it now. And I think I'm more likely to do something like that again in the future. In the past, I felt like I could just chase anybody down. I used to do a lot of it, like I said, and, and I've got some great car, uh, signed cards to show for it. But signings are a great opportunity when it comes to those players or those subjects that are a lot less accessible. And one player I never saw in my time doing the NBA was Ron Artest. There was a short stint a handful of years ago where he was an assistant coach for the Lakers G League team. And I, this was less than, an, uh, less than a season, maybe even half a year. I thought I was going to have an opportunity to run into him then, but he was done with that by the time that team made its way to Florida. He did do a signing in New York a year or two ago, but I didn't really think much of it. Would have been an expensive trip, but I kind of wish I had at least looked into it a little bit more. I don't think he's really done much of anything since then. Last season, he signed at a Pacers game, but uh, with only about four hours notice ahead of time. And had it actually been announced, I would have considered making a trip to Indiana. I know I just said New York would have been expensive, but... You know, here I'm paying. To, I would be paying to go to a Pacers game. I'd be staying with relatives. Uh, I I could make that one work. I think it would have been a lot of fun. The only other athlete I'm probably really interested in meeting at a signing would be Reggie Miller. But I don't even want to think about what that would cost. I figure he's done signings, but I don't ever remember reading about one. And I'm not talking about local appearances during his playing days. That's kind of a thing of the past. I mean, like a real signing. There's also that whole thing about not meeting your heroes. I've talked about that with a few player collectors that have come on the show. I don't know how I would handle being a fan of a guy for over 30 years and then potentially having a bad experience with him. I don't think that would go over too well. Anyway, if I had to choose a couple photo ops I'd really like to pursue, it'd be those two guys, Reggie Miller and Ron Artest. All right, I've got a good question here from late 90s B-Ball who wrote... Do you think younger people exposed to the hobby at this time will be interested enough to champion the hobby into the future, or are they interested for the wrong reasons and the hobby will die with this generation of 30 to 50 year olds? I'm going to try to look at this one from a basketball lens. You know, the NBA and Michael Jordan specifically were such a big part of pop culture in the 90s, and this was before kids could just go on the internet and, and choose how they wanted to be entertained. I think a large reason why 30 to 50 year olds are interested in basketball cards today is because of nostalgia for that era. Now, I'm not sure culturally if the NBA of this current era is going to have as big of an impact moving forward. I know the MJ fanboys will try to tell you that's one of the reasons why LeBron doesn't measure up. I don't buy that. These are just much different times. But I think we'll think fondly of guys like LeBron and Curry and Giannis, but they won't necessarily help shape an era of culture in the same way that Jordan did. He was the right person for the right time. Like I said, things are different today, and I think the hobby could suffer as a result of that as well. Speaking of MJ, Indy Lions 23 wrote, a question mostly to argue for the 84 star being MJ's rookie card, if the hobby logic holds that the 86 Fleer is MJ's rookie card as it was pack pulled, then 2019 WNBA Donruss is one of the greatest basketball sets 
All the Rittenhouse sets from 2012 to 2018 were sold as complete box sets, so since these were not randomly inserted in packs, the logic would follow that 2019 Donners contains the rookie cards of Asia Wilson, Brianna Stewart, Brittany Griner, and many more. Best product ever. Invest? And he had a question mark on the hashtag, so I had to read it like Ron Burgundy. Look, I get the logic there, and even though I've dabbled in WNBA stuff, I'm probably not the best person to answer this, but I will give it a shot. I think the WNBA collectors have kind of already decided that the Rittenhouse stuff is the rookie stuff. And you mentioned Brittany Griner there. I'll use her as an example. I think her Rittenhouse rookie was all the way back in 2013. So she had quite a few cards that came out before 2019 Donruss. And seeing as it all happened in the internet era, if people wanted them, they could have easily have found them. Whereas the star stuff in the mid 80s, it's my understanding you could get it, but it took quite a bit more effort because it was a regional release. So, um, you know, at, at bare minimum, you were ordering it from a catalog, a mail catalog. So um, a regional release in the 80s versus a box set or regional release in the 2010s, those are worlds apart. Um, I get what you're asking, though, and I thought it was an interesting question. Forrest Dim asks, what's your storage system like, especially for junk wax, commons, duplicates, and all the random cards from your eBay binder purchases. I'll save the binder stuff for the next question. I wish I could tell you I have a great solution for junk wax and commons. I just have a bunch of boxes here at the house. Uh, Now granted, they're not necessarily just like laying all over the floor. They are on shelves and stuff, but it's a combination of four rows and card houses and shoe boxes probably not the greatest system, but I build it up over the years. And when you just get used to using something over time, you start to get a pretty good idea where most of your stuff is at. So I guess that's kind of the phase I'm at in my collecting life right now. Okay. For binders, Cardboard Insights wrote, I'm building out some new binders. Would love to hear some of the thought that went into yours and why you did them the way you did. What types of binders did you use? How did you group your cards? How do you handle rare slabbed cards that may be better kept in slabs but would look sweet in the parallel run? And then being a completionist versus making your own checklist to avoid getting cards just to get them. Well, I struggled quite a bit figuring out how I wanted to arrange things, and um, this actually prevented me from using binders for a while. I wanted to have things planned out perfectly before I started, but finally I just conceded to the fact that I wouldn't get it perfect And I had to jump in and and just adjust things as I went, which I'm still doing. I don't think I'll ever be completely happy, but I'm starting to figure things out. And you might have seen a story post recently where you saw that I printed out pictures of my rare slab prism gold so I didn't have to crack them out of their slabs. And yeah, you know, there were some people that said that's a great idea. There were other people that said that's kind of goofy. Do the printouts look exactly as I want them to? No. But if you're flipping through the binders quick, they do a pretty good job of filling that spot of the real card. With that being said, here are the main binders I have going right now. Um, I have a refractor binder. This is a uh, 12 pocket Z folio for pacer sets in the pre Panini era. And I don't generally put color or gold stuff in there. It's just base refractors for Topps Finest, Topps Chrome, Bowman Chrome, I think there's a little stadium club and and maybe a few other lesser known products mixed in there as well. But I feel like even though those are different brands, I can get continuity with those. Then I have a similar binder for the silver stuff that came out during the Panini era. 
And I tried to just stick with the big set. So it's mainly prism, select, and optic. Uh, after that, I have a nine pocket Z folio for all the Pacers gold stuff. And well, I say all the Pacers gold stuff, it's still certain ones. So the front portion is mainly Topps Chrome and Topps Finest, followed by Prism and Optic. And I've got some other miscellaneous stuff like Bowman Chrome and Select after that. Then the back of the gold binder is not gold at all. It has cards that picture games I attended, uh, although those are those are coming out. Those are going in something else. I, I've got to figure out what I'm doing with that because that collection keeps growing at a pretty nice pace. After that, I have a Panini Blue Binder. Uh, this is in a card guard, so it's kind of a cheaper version of that Z Folio. This is just Panini Era Blue Parallels for the Pacers from Prism, Select, and Optic. After that, I have a numbered and insert binder for 90s and 2000s Pacers, and I'm really trying to build out the Ron Artest pages in those. Uh, another binder, or I have a few more binders that have odds and ends in them, but my last main binder is another Panini era binder. It's got Paul George pages. It's got inserts and parallels I like from different years. Ones that I'm just now figuring out about too. It's got an Oladipo page. It has a Halliburton page. It's got some galactic stuff. Uh, and then there's leftover stuff that I just didn't know what to do with. So um, that one is starting to take shape and, and I'll probably move some stuff in and out of there soon as well. And then I almost forgot. I have one more binder that I just started. It's another card guard binder. It's my flux binder. I'm not even sure I'll have enough cards to fill the whole thing up, but uh, I do have my 2022 flux cards. I have a, a page for each pacer. So there's eight of those. And then I think I'm going to do the 2020 pacers in there as well, um, which I've got them second in there because I like 2022 better. So I, that'll probably get shuffled around if I get more serious about that 2020 project. But uh, who knows? The 2020 stuff is just really hideous. Uh, anyway, those are the main binders I'm working on right now, aside from base sets and, and some of that kind of stuff. Speaking of flux, last week I shared a question from Chatri, aka Wade underscore Zoe, who asked if people who collect status are status truthers, what do you propose calling people who collect flux? So like I said last week, I don't have a good answer for this one. So I ask you guys what you thought the two answers I've received so far are Flux Fiends and Flux Fanboys. Now, I also happened to stumble across an account of another Flux enthusiast, and he described himself as a Flux lover, followed by the hashtag FlexYourFlux. Try saying that ten times fast. So, I guess the next question is, where are all my Flux lovers at? And are there any others in the WMP household? And that's what Steve, a.k.a. S. Howley, 2003, or Showley, wants to know. He wrote, We all know Mrs. Wax Museum infamously declared that hoop sucks. Inquiring minds need to know, what is her take on flux? Well, I wasn't sure, so as you'll hear here in a moment, I, I just ask her. Okay, so it's been well documented that you think that hoop sucks, so uh, Showley wants to know what you think of my new current obsession, which is Flux. So I've got a stack of base cards here. I want you to go ahead and look at those. And then I also have a couple of parallels at the end. I want you to take a look at those and let me know. What do you think of Flux? Well, first off, hi, Steve. How's that Jay Crowder? Um, okay, so the Flux kind of reminds me of a poor man's prism. Okay, take a look at the parallels. What do you think of those? Okay. Although Prism's not good anymore either, so there's that. 
The parallels are indeed very shiny. I do like this um, Aaron Neesmith one. Okay, so she's looking at the blue one right now. Yeah, it's eye-catching. And then there's this like purpley galaxy one that looks pretty cool. Okay. So I'll give you credit for that. So that's the supernova. So in other words, the base cards look like a cheap version of Prism. Prism's not very good anymore. And then you like the parallels. I like the parallels. Okay, so I think we're aligned on that. And no, she was not coached on this, but we do align on those. Okay, TJ is online. Ask, what is your hardest post-1980 card to find in a desired condition? And then he shared with me that his toughie was the 86-87 Fleer Larry Bird. He said he had a hard time finding one that was centered and without print defects. Um, This is going to sound crazy, but I can't think of anything post-1980 that I wanted where I struggled to find a specific grade. Pre-1980, there's a handful of options, uh, mostly vintage rookies. But after that, I, I don't really have anything that fits that exact criteria. And I thought about that for a while, but I've got nothing. All right, we're hitting the home stretch here. The Corner View wrote, with the All-Star game fast approaching, what would your top three All-Star relic items be? If this is referring to the ones I own, I've got a Jermaine O'Neal nameplate I've talked about on here before. I've got a nice Jermaine O'Neal upper deck patch from the Vegas game. I've got an immaculate Sean Kemp that features a jumbo piece from the 95 game. I like all of those. If we're talking relics in general and and ones that maybe I don't own, I've always kind of wanted one of the teal Jordan pieces that upper deck used across a small range of products. I can never justify the price though, but I've always thought those were really cool. And I actually like those better than the UD game Jersey that I talked about on here before with uh, a former upper deck employee. The card Din asked, what is the most overrated rare basketball card parallel? This is a tricky uh, and also dangerous question because at the end of the day, it's all subjective. So I think there's some 90s stuff that receives a lot more attention than it probably should. That doesn't mean that stuff isn't nice. I just think a lot of people hold them in such high regard simply because their social media habits condition them to think that way. Like, would people really love their 98 Fleer Brilliance 24 karat golds if they couldn't post them and have people comment on them? Or would they get just as much enjoyment out of the gold number to 99 for a fraction of the price? And and that's just one example. I'm not even trying to knock that parallel. Um, I, I think it's a pretty nice card. Or look at the 96 basketball credentials. I know, yes, they're special for the time, but there's a lot of them. Many of them have that diamond cut at the top. You know, a mid-grade Jordan's going to cost you maybe four or five grand. Or you can buy a 95 hoop Skyview, which kind of looks similar, for 10% of that price. Do you really like the credentials that much? And it's just something to think about. And uh, truth be told, that's just my way of getting around that question. So who knows? Okay, last one. Wildcat Collector wrote, Networking can be pretty important to tracking down hard-to-find cards. Do you have advice on how to build a presence online? Which apps to use, what communities to participate in, etc. I've been a collector of lower-end Kentucky basketball players for 30-plus years, and it seems to get harder and harder to track down the truly rare modern stuff of my favorite players. Well, you're already on Instagram, and in my opinion, that's the best online community when it comes to basketball cards. There is Facebook as well, but I I try not to go on there, but I I realize I miss out on a lot of stuff in the process. But 
Um, I think you also did the right thing by including the word wildcat in your name. So if I didn't have to brand all my social media to go along with the podcast, I probably would put the word Pacers somewhere in my handles because I feel like my friend Vintage Pacers gets a lot of nice stuff sent his way simply because people find nice Pacers cards and they're looking to move them on social media and you search Pacers and and Steve's account is one of the first ones that comes up. Now, just being on social media is probably not going to cut it. I think the most important thing that a lot of people are actually afraid to do is to share your collection. I'm not saying you have to share every rare card, but I'm a firm believer that if you're constantly sharing pictures and videos of your PC, a lot of nice cards will find their way to you. Similarly, if you make it a point to send posts or info about rare cards to other collectors, I promise you, a lot of those people will start looking out for you as well. You mentioned you've been collecting for a long time. I'm probably not telling you anything new here, so a lot of this is more for a general audience. One last thing you might consider, though, that maybe you haven't done, and it takes quite a bit of work to build out, is YouTube. So I started my channel to just kind of go along with the audio podcast and post an occasional video here and there. There are a lot of people out there that have never listened to a podcast, but they watch my videos. And as you can imagine, I post a lot of Pacer stuff, a lot of Top 75 stuff on there. People get used to seeing that. And when they see it at a card shop or a local show, in some cases, they'll send information my way. That's not to say I've landed a lot of cards that way, but I know it's helped with at least a few. The big one being my Reggie Miller Gold Label Finals Leather Relic. That's one I never imagined I would own, and I have YouTube to thank for that. So anyway, try to stay active on social media, post content regularly, help other collectors find stuff they're looking for, And then don't be afraid to give some of the more intimidating platforms like YouTube a try as well. Consider that my quick little guide to networking in the sports card world. All right, well, there you have it. Thanks to everyone that submitted a question this week. Some of you submitted multiple questions. I had to cut some of those out for time. You can see this is already going pretty long, but I tried to at least get one for everyone who submitted something. Maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or X under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.